much again, everyone. Welcome to Too Close or Too Far, Setting Best Boundaries with Clients. This is day one of our training. Um, we will have four sessions and we'll get into when those are going to occur. For um, today's training, right at the beginning, just want to introduce myself and then Elizabeth will introduce herself. Uh, my name is Chelsea. I use she, her pronouns. I'm a licensed clinical social worker and a community mental health trainer with PMHP, um, which is the uh, public mental health partnership and it's uh, between UCLA and the Department of Mental Health. Um, I uh, come to this topic uh, from experience working in the field and probably some similar scenarios that you all work in. I was a clinical case manager doing outreach in the Tenderloin in San Francisco in my last direct service position. And prior to that, I worked in the prison system in patient mental health unit. And so uh, the boundaries between a very controlled environment and then a very uncontrolled environment in the tenderloin uh, required me to really pay attention to boundaries and figure out how they might change depending on where I'm working, who I'm working with, um, and it just became very fascinating to me and a helpful thing to think about to uh, combat burnout and just improve my own resilience in this kind of work. Um, so I hope that the material lands in a similar way with you and is helpful in your uh, efforts to provide the best care and support to your clients. Um, I now just want to invite my colleague, Elizabeth, to introduce yourself also to our group. Hi, everyone. Um, and yes, thank you for all of the introductions in uh, the chat. I'm seeing some interns and trainees here, which is super cool. Um, and similar to Chelsea, um, well, I can say I'm Elizabeth Mackey. I uh, work for PMHP and have for about three and a half years. I work on our training side. Uh, coordinating and organizing all of our online trainings. Um, and I'm a social worker by background uh, and seeing interns and possibly, I guess, students here uh, reminds me of how this really wasn't covered in school, this topic of boundaries. <laughs> and Chelsea and I have talked about this a good bit, how we kind of wish we had a better, better level of instruction on this topic. Um, and it is one of those things that you learn a lot about once you're practicing, um, more so than a code of ethics can ever teach you. Um, so that's what we'll be spending eight hours getting into over the coming weeks um, and starting with a couple hours today. Uh, but just briefly, my background has been in a variety of settings. I started my career working in more of a hospital setting um, in clinical intervention research for mental health and substance use. Um, and then shifted into more of like community mental health nonprofit. I worked for an agency in New York City that has a really large peer training program. Um, so I've had the opportunity to work alongside people who aren't necessarily trained with uh, a certain um, set of expe expectations around client worker boundaries, uh, much like I was trained as an MSW. Um, work with folks who it's a different picture. And we'll talk, talk about that a good bit today, um, how your training background might impact how you uh, perceive boundaries. Um, we'll talk about self-disclosure. Um, but yeah, I, all the same, <laughs> wish that this is a topic that we had had, uh, better instruction on earlier in my career, because 
it is hard to know if you're doing it right. And this training will not be able to tell you exactly what to do in any of these really gray area boundary situations, but we hope to improve um, how you think about it um, and the, uh, how informed you are in thinking about it as you navigate your relationships with your clients. Okay. So today um, we're gonna spend a little bit more time uh, introducing the concepts, um, getting to know each other, a couple of little icebreakers, and um, then we'll spend a good chunk of time talking about specific concepts uh, that relate to boundaries. Uh, there will be a break in the middle, around 155 or two, we'll try our best to stay on target with our timing here. And then um, after we wrap up the concepts, we'll introduce a vignette or a scenario, like a, a hypothetical client scenario where boundaries might come up and then we'll practice together how you might deal with that. And then in our last 10 minutes, we'll do a little wrap up and we'll talk about um, what you might wanna practice in between now and our next session. Uh, so that's our agenda. You can uh, move forward, exactly. So today's day one of four. Uh, there are four sessions in this series. Um, we're gonna be meeting every other week uh, at the same time, one to 3 p.m. Um, each session is going to include a presentation on concepts, a vignette or scenario that will break down together, um, and discussion. We really encourage you to participate. Um, it is It just makes it more engaging for everybody. So looking forward to hearing your thoughts on these uh, different topics as we go forward. So our learning objectives today are to, we hope that by the end of today's session, you'll be able to define key terms related to interpersonal closeness in the therapeutic work, including terms like boundaries. We'll definitely get into how we're defining that, boundary setting, transference and countertransference, and empathy and autonomy. Um, you'll also be able to use two examples or uh, come up with two examples where you name why, when, and how to seek consultation when boundary clarification is needed. That's kind of one of our main goals here is to help uh, folks identify when they can just ask for more help, support, um, practice self-reflection with other people. And we'll get into examples of that as we go. Uh, use two examples, name why, when, and how to practice boundary setting skills and work with unsheltered individuals or other types of clients. Um, so we'll but that all that to say is we'll figure out when you need to clarify boundaries and then how to do it, how to do the boundary setting. And finally, that last bullet point there, um, you'll be able to explain two ways in which boundary setting practices may affect a professional's risk and experience of burnout. Um, so that's just what to what we hope you'll get out of this. So participant agreements. Uh, I come from a group therapy social work background, so I love to set the scene in um, acknowledging that we're in a group and we can all contribute to it in a positive way. Um, and in order to do that, I hope we can agree to take care of ourselves. Um, some of the boundaries content, not necessarily today, but potentially in future sessions, maybe even today, could bring up some challenging feelings for you. Um, if that happens, we invite you to take a break, you know, get something to eat or drink, take care of yourself, um, maybe debrief with someone you trust, 
that's totally welcome. Uh, we also uh, would love your agreement in uh, trying to participate as much as you're able to at this time. We have a couple polls. We'll be asking you questions, which you can share your responses in the chat. You can also um, may have opportunities to unmute and we can uh, have you tell us uh, your response using your voice and video. Uh, the third agreement is to respect each other. And just like Elizabeth was mentioning, we come from different training backgrounds and we also come from other kinds of backgrounds that differ when it comes to expectations around boundaries. So um, really focusing on that respect for each other and that we all have kind of different uh, backgrounds that contribute to how we understand this, these types of issues. Um, finally, we wanna be curious about ourselves and our work. I really think curiosity helps us be more open to change and adaptation as we continue to grow in the work. Um, and then the last agreement, you may have heard it if you have done groups yourself, um, but step up, step back. I always like to offer this, that if you're someone who's pretty quiet, um, you might wanna try to step up and participate. That doesn't mean you have to unmute or anything. You can participate in the chat. Um, but maybe put in a little extra push to yourself to do that. Um, and then if you're someone who, you know, has no problem participating, you can maybe hold a couple beats to let those other folks who are trying to step up speak. Um, this does not mean that we want anyone to not be speaking or uh, participating when you feel inclined to do so. Um, it's just more of a, a way that we can all kind of think about uh, ways we want to grow and, and build community within this series that we're doing together today. Okay, so what can we expect today? And what do we not want you to expect today? Uh, you can expect learning. Um, you can expect the opportunity to practice reflection um, on your own experiences. You can expect a little bit of discomfort. Uh, boundaries uh, bring up discomfort because like Elizabeth said earlier, we, it's hard to know if we're doing it correctly. And so that can be uncomfortable. Um, we also want you to know how much we appreciate the hard work that you do. So we will be, uh, you know, letting you know that throughout the training. And then um, we'll be encouraging you to participate via chat. Um, throughout. What not to expect, there are no perfect or concrete answers. Generally, there are a few, um, but many, uh, much of this work is uh, really figuring out um, things as you go. And so we don't want to expect these perfect, concrete answers. We kind of got to get in that gray area and get a little comfortable with being uncomfortable there. Um, also, don't expect that all content will fit squarely within what you do in your agency. Uh, policies and um, perspectives might be different depending on your level of training, what your team does. Um, so just wanna put that out there and we're not gonna have breakout rooms. So if that's something you don't like, then you're in luck. Uh, we're not gonna be doing that here. Okay. And I would add one tiny oh, yes, little please. thing um, that just came to me. So Chelsea and I developed this training last year. Um, so this is the second time we've gone through it about the same time of year, actually. Um, and it was specifically for uh, homeless 
outreach workers. So if you see anything in here that seems to have language around specifically unsheltered or unhoused individuals or outreach work that we haven't caught and sort of expanded to be more inclusive of different types of providers, and, and we support FSP via PMHP, so I'm sure we have plenty of FSP folks here as well, or other, other, program, um, other programs. Uh, that's why. And also because we were trying to train some folks that weren't working on clinical teams, they were just outreach teams. We kind of extracted out clinical language. So you won't see a lot of like diagnosis or um, assessment focused language. Um, it's going to be a bit more broad, uh, at least for, for this training today. And we'll see how we sort of alter the content for the, the coming dates. But just wanted to give that caveat. This training is for everyone that is here and will be applicable to everyone here. Just if you see language that looks specific to homeless outreach, that's why. Okay. Thanks so much, Elizabeth. Yeah, I saw that with that one word. I was like, oh, yes, that is not as expansive as we are thinking. So thanks for that. All right, so what are we even talking about when it comes to boundaries? Um, let's uh, let's define it, make sure we're using the same language. Um, you know, when I was thinking about defining boundaries, I think of how I didn't really have a conception of what that meant for a long time, which might give you a clue to my own boundary setting that I needed to be doing in my life that I didn't know. But at the time, I, it just was really hard for me to conceptualize. So hopefully this can be helpful if you also struggle with that like I have. Um, but this pyramid kind of shows the different parts of boundaries that uh, we consider really important. So we have in the middle, communicate limits. Well, actually, let's start at the top of this pyramid. So boundaries, they create safety for provider and the client. Um, when your boundaries are not being crossed, when your boundaries are not um, being violated, that feels safer than the other way. And it's both safety for yourself, your own emotional, physical safety, as well as your client's emotional and physical safety. And we do this by communicating and eliciting the limits and needs um, of ourselves and of our clients. Uh, boundaries also involves defining clear roles. So what is your role in this relationship? What is the client's role? Um, and in doing so, you can also get clarity about expectations. What is your client expect of you? What do you expect of your client? And all other kinds of folks that you work with, not just clients. But um, so the, this to us is a great combination of uh, aspects of boundaries that make it all make sense and in line with what we're doing when we're trying to uh, be autonomy supportive and recovery oriented with our clients. Um, let's see if I have anything else about this. I think we can go to the next slide. To get a little bit more technical, um, this is from the literature. Um, here are some definitions on the left you'll see a boundary may be defined as the edge of appropriate professional behavior, transgression of which involves the therapist stepping out of the clinical role or breaching the clinical role. I put that uh, little top paragraph in bold because I really like that pic mental picture of the edge of appropriate professional behavior because that's what we're trying to figure out. Where's the line, right? Um, and when you see some of the literature informed 
material content we have in our slides, it might say therapist. And if you're not a therapist, I would still say that this really can be used um, for anyone who's in a helping role, um, doesn't have to be a therapist or anything. So just wanna put that out there. Um, here's another one, another definition on the right. Uh, and I'll read from the beginning of that one, therapeutic limits that allow for the protection of the patient's best interests, thereby allowing for safety, reliability, and dependability, all things we want to be for our clients, right? The psychotherapist or case manager or peer or psychiatrist attempts to protect boundaries by maintaining focus on the patient's difficulties as they relate to therapeutic goals, reducing or attending to the role of therapist opinion and enhancing opportunities to increase patient independence and autonomy. Um, so we can see here that we're trying to find the line of what is appropriate behavior in line with really wanting to support our clients' abilities um, to feel recognized as having agency and really um, trying to keep our focus on what uh, our clients need, what they're expressing to us. Okay, so we've talked about what boundaries are. Um, how are they determined or developed? Well, it is, you know, you have to take a lot of things into consideration. We wanna think about client preferences and needs. Um, we don't just have needs here because what our clients prefer um, is also very important. Um, we also need to pay attention to our own preferences and limits. Um, we gotta think, take into consideration the service context. Like I was mentioning in my intro, my work in the prison setting, the boundaries there looked very different from working in the community um, because of the structural elements that were out of my control. Um, so you might have some of that going on depending on where you provide your services to people. Um, we also have to take into account program policy. We might have um, different policies at different agencies that uh, approach some boundary issues differently. Um, so those are certainly part of it. Ethics, um, some folks, might be licensed, um, might be um, governed by uh, an ethics, um, gosh, I'm <laughs> blanking on the name, but a code of ethics, there we go. Um, a code of ethics, like for social work, we have a code of ethics. There's a code of ethics for a number of different types of uh, providers. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about that later, um, but taking into consideration what our professional ethical uh, expectations are is also goes into figuring out where the boundaries are. And finally, relationship considerations, power dynamics. We're gonna go into that in a bit. But as we all know, us being the provider and our clients being the client has in there an implicit uh, power dynamic that we're always challenging in order to re, uh, refocus on our clients' needs and support their ability to uh, have power in their uh, decision, in their treatment, in their uh, support services. And then boundaries are communicated in a number of ways. Um, first, we have per permission or consent. So we do informed consent with clients. I, I know that we're uh, likely all familiar with that. We also ask permission sometimes. May I talk to you? Is now a good time? Um, 
so thinking about when we need permission and when we need official consent goes into boundaries. Uh, boundaries can be communicated in, uh, when you land on them with a client or another colleague. Um, you can either have an agreement that you build together on what the boundaries are. One of you may notify the other of the boundary, like this is my boundary, for instance, during COVID being like, we need to stay six feet away, right? You're notifying, it's not optional um, in that moment for safety. But then sometimes it might be a negotiation. You know, your client says, I need to call you after work hours and you're, you have to negotiate. Okay, well, that doesn't work. These are my work hours. You might, you might collaborate a little bit more on determining what that boundary is. Um, boundaries are also communicated by commitment and follow through. Um, so being clear about what you're going to do and then doing it, that's how, that communicates that you're respecting someone's boundaries. Um, all right. And then we have types of boundaries. There are so many different types of boundaries, but we put them into a couple buckets here so we can think a little bit clearly about some examples. Um, you know, a big one is safety. There's environmental safety, what's going on in the environment. And then there's internal emotional safety. You know, what comes up for you? What comes up for your client? Um, then we have time. I mentioned earlier, like a client wanting to reach you after hours. How much time are you able to spend with one client when you have a full caseload? You know, the amount of time, the frequency, scheduling, that's a type of boundary. Financial, this can come up if you're on an FSP team with flex funds. This can come up uh, if you're trying to help a client um, who might have some boundary issues around finances with others in their lives. Um, there could be more examples there too. Physical, that's pretty self-explanatory. Um, you know, the social distancing could be an example of that. Um, when I worked in the prison system, having any sort of physical touch with my client was completely not allowed. You know, so it might change depending on your where you are. Um, and then attraction, this can be a really uncomfortable one to talk about because uh, we, we don't wanna think about having any sort of attraction to our clients because we're at work and this is the thing, but we're also all humans and feelings around friendship and romance can come up. And, um, and while that isn't always very wonderful experience, it is really important to be able to notice if any of this is happening so that we can have a self-reflective uh, practice about it, check in with someone else, um, and, and just have more self-awareness. So those are the different types. And finally, um, I'll end my portion right now with a little bit about why are these important? Hopefully you've gotten a little bit of this messaging from what I said before. Okay. So boundaries, they're important. They're important for safety, emotional and physical. They're important in order to be able to provide quality care, which means we're being client-centered, we're supporting, or we're um, engaging in clear communication and expectation setting, we're being trauma-informed. Um, and then ethics, we want to honor that there is an inherent power balance, not by saying, oh, that's great, but by just acknowledging that that is there and that we, there are tools we can use to, to fight that power imbalance to 
support autonomy more, and then of course ethics. So this is, uh, I'm gonna transfer it back over to Elizabeth for our next little bit. Okay, so taking over from here, we are gonna touch on, um, well, uh, one piece of this, why are boundaries important um, aspect, but it really is kind of overlapping to some of the other things you see listed here, and that is trauma-informed care. Um, and I say that because safety is a big piece of trauma-informed care. Um, so trauma-informed care is something that we really value. It's one of our um, at PMHP and training uh, the providers we support. It's one of our core pillars of our sort of training approach. Uh, we'll do a long series on it in probably in January, if I'm not mistaken, January or February um, of this coming year. Um, I don't think I can pitch any other trainings. I think that's the next one. <laughs> uh, anyway, trauma-informed care is defined by SAMHSA has sort of five, five things it's based off of, and that is trust, safety, choice, collaboration, and empowerment. Um, and why is this so important for boundaries? As I just mentioned, safety, emotional safety. So that's, uh, we talk about sort of supporting folks to have control over what's going on in, in a moment in their lives. Uh, in their care um, and containment, sort of using our professional lens to see when someone is experiencing the impact of trauma or, uh, and that could be in conversations, sharing their history with you. It could be um, in any number of instances, uh, offering a container that is safe um, and has some limits around it so that you're working to keep them safe um, and not maybe uh, becoming overexposed or raw, um, sort of teaching, right? So we try to create a safe container and we also do that through being consistent um, as Chelsea's already mentioned, um, say, doing what we say we're gonna do, um, following through uh, and setting fair expectations that all creates a safer container and a safe relationship. Um, there are functional aspects alongside that. And again, consistency, expectation, clarity, um, and that's that's certainly to create that safe container. And it's also to, you know, be a, a person that they can trust, um, that uh, that your clients can rely on and know that you know how much you will be there and that you will be there as much as you say you're going to. Um, modeling healthy boundaries. So folks who have experienced trauma, past or continued, might not have uh, ever learned healthy boundaries or if they did learn them at some point in their lives that they may have learned something different from their recent life experiences. Uh, they might struggle to uh, maintain, uh, develop and maintain healthy boundary relationships uh, in their personal lives. So when you act with healthy boundaries um, with in your relationship with your clients, you're modeling something that they can then apply in their own lives. Um, okay, so finally, we think about a trauma-informed lens as really important for when we're working with clients, and this is sort of delicate wording here, who may use challenging to work with strategies to get their needs met. Um, I think there are some other ways I've heard this spoken about in my career, some not so delicate. Um, I think I've heard the word manipulative, um, demanding, disrespectful, uh, attention-seeking, um, I'm sure there are some others. We actively try to move away from that sort of language uh, because it's pretty judgmental and it's pretty labeling. And 
even if it's how we're <laughs> we're experiencing something, um, it isn't it isn't sort of ethical, fair, or recovery oriented to use that to describe um, describe what clients are doing. So we try and stick to objective language. You know, if someone's calling you after work all the time, they're calling you after work all the time. Um, and another big hitter in sort of stigmatized labels around people using challenging to work with strategies to get their needs met. Uh, we hear about this a lot with folks who might be um, assigned the diagnosis of borderline personality disorder. If you work in a more clinical role or if you don't, you may have heard this. Again, a label we really try to say, mm, let's not, I'm sure you've heard it at some point in your career. Oh, that person's borderline. Can't wait to work with them. A bit of like drudgery and dread over, you know, the potential crisis frequency or, uh, you know, lots of contact, uh, lots of feelings. <laughs> if we look at that through a lens of this person's driving me a bit bananas um, and it's challenging to manage these boundaries, uh, that isn't really the full lens that we're hoping that you can look at that person who might be experiencing those symptoms or experiencing needing to use those strategies because that's what they've learned. We look at that person through a trauma-informed lens. We can see that they have learned to try to get their needs met in a variety of strategies that have worked for them to some degree thus far, um, or that they learned via modeling or uh, that it, trauma in many ways is influenced. So having that sensitivity and compassion to the root of trauma in so many of the clinical pictures and stories of the folks that you work with is really important in diffusing some of that potential frustration and judgment. And yes, it's okay to get frustrated if someone is crossing your boundaries and calling you after work when you've asked them not to all the time. And yes, it is very hard if someone is threatening suicide a lot and you're, you know, having to figure out what, how to deal with that, how to, how to assess that person on an ongoing basis and provide the type of care that they need all the same with boundaries and in the context of this training, uh, we wanna maintain that trauma-informed lens to see someone as uh, more multifaceted than um, just the person blowing up your voicemail. Okay, and we will get into more sort of examples of that in the coming days um, and be able to talk through how you actually then do that boundary setting and maintenance. Okay, um, power and boundaries. There is an inherent power imbalance in provider-client relationships. We know way more about clients than they know about us. And so why might this be important for boundaries? Why does it matter? Yep, yeah, okay, safety, for sure. Power is something that, you know, uh, isn't all, the, the information that we have on folks um, isn't, it's absolutely necessary to do our job. We have their protected health information. We know information about their demographics, their identity, um, their private feelings and thoughts. If they engage in illicit activities, who is in their life? Um, all of that is really helpful for us to provide services. Right, amazing point, thank you. Right, so when we have this power, we are human and imperfect and full of bias, um, both implicit and explicit. And that's a different training um, on how you <laughs> try and become aware of that and not have it influence your work to stay really sort of blank slate and objective and uh, see all the angles of your client's experience. Um, but sometimes the power that we have and the knowledge that we have and the fact that they don't have that about us can impact how that power is utilized and how we make decisions about their care. Um, so this can impact their quality of life. 
uh, you know, you think about treatment changes and then reporting, oh my goodness, like what a big way in which we can impact folks' lives. Um, okay, seeing some comments here. Uh, it's important to build trust and rapport before addressing certain things, absolutely. Um, if no boundaries, it can become personal. We need to be careful. Yeah, we'll talk about that on another day, especially. Well, actually, I think that day might be today now that I'm thinking about it. <laughs> um, trust, maintaining clarity. Um, yeah, do, doing no harm. Okay, great points. So how do we balance power? It can't, it's inherent. We can't totally balance the power. We can't tell uh, the folks we serve everything about ourselves. Um, wouldn't be, wouldn't have much of a purpose and it would definitely be a, a boundary crossing, but we can do a lot uh, to balance that power. Um, we think a lot about autonomy um, and that is uh, defined as self-directing freedom and especially moral independence, uh, independence or freedom as of the will or of one's actions. So we can support people's autonomy and we can do this in a myriad of ways from big decisions to little decisions. Sometimes you might work with folks who are autonomy restricted. Maybe they are conserved or maybe they are at times incarcerated um, or um, on probation or parole. We can still work with people to support their autonomy where they can make decisions in their care and in their lives. And that is referring to that uh, not just considering clients' needs, but their preferences, as Chelsea was uh, noting earlier. That's related also to shared or supported decision-making. This is an approach where we are really working to inform clients of all the options that they have in deciding what they want their care to be, what treatment they're open to. Um, it's sort of a, a proactive approach in that. Um, and it's something we have other resources on if you're ever interested in getting some tools to learn how to have conversations that employ shared or supported decision-making. And finally, consent. Um, so ideally, we're asking permission to talk with folks about most things um, within reason. Um, but definitely, we want to ask uh, for consent and check on that um, about really important treatment decisions and when information is shared. Uh, sharing risks and benefits um, is another area of informed consent. We think of informed consent often as well. Um, and that is so people can make informed choice. Uh, so as I mentioned earlier, uh, I've worked with a number of people from different training backgrounds, and I'm sure you all have too. And I bet we have uh, a large variety of folks in the room. So as Chelsea was touching on earlier, uh, people who have different training backgrounds are going to be held to different sort of different standards, different codes of ethics. Um, specifically uh, folks with that are licensed or people who've just uh, completed master's degrees usually are held to a code of ethics. The one for social work might look different than the one for licensed mental, uh, sorry, licensed marriage and family therapists, which might look different than psychologists or RNs or MDs um, or P, yeah, P, other PhDs perhaps. Um, so that's, that's one sort of realm of uh, training and experience that can impact how you navigate boundaries with your clients, what the rules are and how, how strict they are. Um, also folks, and this is great, great news, um, folks who have uh, lived experience and have been able to uh, use that lived experience to become a peer support specialist. Now California has certification for this, um, which means I don't think it's developed yet. So someone feel free to correct me if I 
if I if I don't know is incorrect, uh, if a code of ethics has yet been established in California for the peer support specialists. But we were the one of the last two states to not have the certification in the country. So if you're not terribly familiar with peer support specialists and the amazing work that they do, um, think you can do some reading from other states um, and see what their experiences have been like, because we hope this workforce is really going to grow, blossom, and become integrated into uh, field-based and other mental health services all over LA County and California. Super exciting stuff. Anyway, a code of ethics either will exist or does exist for peers, um, which is great. And we'll see what that says. Um, education, otherwise, there are plenty of folks that maybe have lived experience and haven't done peer certification and they just know how to do the job. Uh, a bunch of outreach workers that we, uh, I think, met with last year uh, had high school or uh, associate's degrees or GEDs, I'm forgetting what the new acronym is for GED, or bachelor's level degrees, um, and we're, are doing this work and might not have the clinical training, but they've got the on the ground experience that puts them in a great position to do this work. So boundaries for that, um, sort of in terms of policy and training might look they might not have occurred yet. Um, so we're really hoping if that is your training background, that this training can be helpful to you um, to give you sort of a more structured place to make decisions from. All right, I'm gonna end the poll and share the results. So we have an overwhelming number of case managers. There are 70 of you here. Um, we have 28 therapists, six nurses, zero psychiatrists, 19 peers, awesome. Six substance abuse counselors, 20 supervisors, 11 who work in administration and six who work in training. All right, holler at our fellow trainers. Um, this is a wonderful uh, variety of folks in the room. Um, and I am, I will be interested to hear as we go through, especially in the discussion later, your difference in perspectives on how in the, in the case vignette, how that situation could be navigated. And we expect that you'll have different perspectives and that's okay. All right, so in particular, self-disclosure is gonna be an area where based off of your training background, you might have a different understanding and you might've been totally instructed on to do it differently. And it, it actually is exactly what you're supposed to be doing. And we think of this particularly for folks with some peer training. Um, also, as Chelsea mentioned earlier, where you work, what your agency policy is, hugely impacts the tra ongoing training you receive um, via supervision or um, and just like a training department that you might have or external trainings that you're instructed to go to. Um, you know, folks that have maybe are on more clinical teams will likely have clinical supervision. Uh, less clinical teams, as I mentioned before, maybe just like homeless outreach teams or other just not so mental health treatment focused teams might have more administrative supervision. It, you might not have it set up where you're really processing uh, and reflective supervision, you know, your feelings about uh, working with different clients, counter-transference, which we'll talk about shortly. Um, you might just be covering, did you see this person? What services did you uh, do? Did you do an assessment and are your notes in? That's possible. Um, and so different folks working on different teams might have different resources in terms of consultation and um, getting to reflect on boundaries. So you'll hear us repeat it over and over again. Where, however, you can develop a reflective process is really critical. Um, and 
even in this space in this training that you, this is a good space to do that in. Okay. Okay. So self-disclosure, here's some basic considerations. Um, the purpose of the disclosure and self-disclosure refers to sharing something about yourself, uh, your life, the people in your life, what the, your activities are, your feelings, uh, things like that. Um, the purpose of the disclosure must be to help the client. It can't be for your benefit. It can't be, I've had a hard day and I just need to talk to someone about what's going on with my, my dog who's sick and I don't know what to do with, uh, about their care. Um, or <laughs> maybe a more, uh, sort of poignant example. There is a, a really gray area between being relatable and being a human, um, and maybe talking about a pet or something, you know, sharing that you're a person with a life, um, that can make you seem just a bit more accessible. Um, and then talking about something in your life that make, maybe you're upset about, or you're stressed about, and you're sort of utilizing that space to receive support and to be heard. Um, that is doing communication for your benefit. Um, and this can, of course, move to more extreme examples, um, which I'm sure you can imagine. But most generally, the, the internal check should be, am I saying this thing about myself to help the client sort of maybe um, increase their uh, sort of trust and rapport, improve the relationship? Am I doing it to maybe inspire a little bit of hope um, in them or show I maybe went down a, a similar path and was able to uh, make it to where I am, which is also something we can touch on a bit more as we go along, because um, that's not always <laughs> not always the best uh, form of self-disclosure. Um, or am I doing it because I just really want this person to either know something about me because I have an interest in becoming closer to them and I need to be aware of that, that sort of attraction via friendship um, or attraction other, uh, via romance. Um, or because I just want someone to listen, I want to share. Okay, safety, emotional and physical safety. And this is both for a provider and client. Um, now, what could that look like? If you're self-disclosing something about where you live, um, who's in your life, um, where you receive care, anything like that, that can, that's a bit too much personal detail could be used against you in a harmful way. Um, just, I mean, not to instill paranoia in anyone, but it could happen. Um, and we want safety for the client too. We don't want them having to hold information about uh, our really personal information or private information about us um, in general, in case the, and this is, again, you have to really sort of think down some grim scenarios in which that information could be, could harm that person by them having it. But all the same, we want to consider safety and making decisions around self-disclosure. Impact to the power dynamic. Um, uh, if we are self-disclosing anything that could change a client's perception of us in an even more sort of uh, power imbalanced way, um, that's not ideal. On the flip side, uh, we can also equalize that power dynamic with really judicious, careful instances of self-disclosure. Again, humanizing ourselves, um, sort of, uh, you know, sharing some just very basic detail around I need my coffee in the morning to, to get started or something like that. Uh, that's a, a really basic self-disclosure that probably doesn't, can't hold any harm um, and can increase uh, or decrease a little bit of that expert um, service recipient dynamic. Okay, uh, there's a unique utility for those uh, 
Self-disclosure, there's a unique utility for those with lived experience and peer support training. Um, and those in the room that have that could speak to it much better than I. But if you have, you know, if you've specifically been trained to say, hey, this has been my experience and I have literally have training to coincide with that. And I can share with you how I navigated the system, how I how I dealt with this type of adversity when I was going through it. And I'm quite sure that conversation usually starts with, you know, are you okay with hearing a little bit of my experience um, and being looking out for instances of a person not wanting to hear your experience um, and maybe not, maybe not finding that helpful, but this is a specialized type of training and it's a specialized intervention that folks with lived experience and peer support training can do, which is great. Um, and always if self-disclosure is utilized, there needs to be consultation with a team, with a supervisor um, or training. Uh, there needs to be some way to sort of check, um, get a second pair of ears and eyes on the self-disclosure to make sure it's fitting with healthy boundaries. Okay, and there's no magic formula for any of this. Uh, it's really impossible to predict all the impacts and effects. It's a little bit of, um, you know, experimentation and sort of seeing what works and what, what doesn't, what doesn't hit. Um, yeah, let's see. Okay, here's some suggestions. Um, I don't, I can go, I can think quickly go through all these actually, and then we'll get to our break. Um, We've already touched on this. And again, ignore the word therapist, just provider. We can sort of substitute there. This is a nice uh, list from Knox and Hill. Um, use provider disclosure because it's a helpful intervention, but use it infrequently and judiciously. Use appropriate content. Uh, use appropriate levels of intimacy in therapist, role provider, self-disclosure. Um, and that I, I think we kind of know, it's a bit of a subjective term, but I think we kind of know what intimacy is. Like, how personal, private, sensitive, the details are of what you're sharing. Um, fit the disclosure to the particular client's needs and preferences and consider culture. Uh, let's say you have a religious belief or a political belief that you are considering self-disclosing. And that's something that really flies in the face of or does not jive with the person's culture, religious or political beliefs that you're ser serving. That's not gonna be the most helpful self-disclosure. And in fact, it could impact the relationship negatively at least leaving a lot of questions in the air um, that didn't need to really come up. Uh, so consider culture, have appropriate reasons for self-disclosing, return the focus to the client after the self-disclosure, ask the clients about their responses to the self-disclosure, check in with them, be a little transparent. How was it that I shared that with you? Was that helpful? Um, you know, any number of questions you could ask and probably the most important uh, point on here, the most novel point on this list Self-disclose about issues that you have mostly resolved rather than those with which you continue to struggle. If you are going through a divorce right now, maybe don't share those details. If you went through a divorce 10 years ago, five years ago, and you're feeling pretty good about it, that's okay um, to, and again, use your best judgment in the individual relationship with the client. Uh, but it can't be something you're still grieving, going through the trauma of, <laughs> Um, something where you, the feelings that you have about it are really powerful and can take over the moment because um, that that doesn't leave you in a place where you're in an empathic state with the client um, and they will pick up on it. People are extremely perceptive to what's going on. Uh, if you've got a client you spend a lot of time with, they do know you. Um, so when you give that greater detail to your life and it's visible that you're really struggling, that can uh, really distract from the work that you would otherwise be doing. All right. 
So uh, here's a slide that says, we will all have emotional reactions to our clients. This is normal. We are going to experience things like empathy, where we might experience sympathy. We might feel frustrated, irritated. We feel joyful at times. We feel sad, helpless. We might feel, have judgmental thoughts. Um, there's so many different reactions we might have depending on what clients tell us, what we witness that they go through. Um, that's normal. Our task isn't to suppress, eliminate, avoid, or disguise these emotions. Our task instead is to empower ourselves to exert more control and intention with how we respond to our clients when these internal experiences arise. So just in increasing our self-awareness helps us to have more of a pause and a break between this emotional reaction experience we're having and what we do, what how we respond to the client. Um, and so just want to normalize that this is, is inevitable. We often meet people in circumstances that bring up a lot for us, um, especially because many people get into this work because they are very empathetic. They really want to help people. They care a lot about wellness of their clients. Um, and so, of course, these feelings come up. But what do we do with them is, is the trick, right? So we're going to talk a little bit, and you can go to the next slide, about these concepts out of um, like psychoanalysis, uh, called transference and countertransference. And you, many of you I'm sure have uh, heard of these before, uh, but we just wanted to get more clear on what this is when um, transference or countertransference might be happening. So transference, I like to think of it in a shortcut way in my brain because sometimes complex topics, I have to do that. So if that's you too, feel free to use this trick. But the transference I consider as the client to provider. So the client has some unresolved feelings that are brought up by the provider. Countertransference, on the other hand, is when you as the provider, supporter, helper, um, have these unconscious reactions uh, or almost automatic reactions sometimes that are stirred up by what your client is saying. Um, so for transference, again, when the client is impacted by uh, the provider, you uh, the client may be having these unconscious reactions, which could be cognitions or thoughts, emotions, behaviors, um, in response to something the provider said. Um, and this can serve as a clue to a client's past relationships, interpersonal styles, and their thought and emotional patterns. Um, Countertransference is uh, similar, these internal reactions, thoughts, feelings, actions that um, can, that are stirred up by what a client presents to you, but might be based on your own personal history, your past relationships, um, maybe even past interactions with other clients, um, but it's not really what's going on in the moment. It's what's happened before that's impacting the relationship. Um, these things, having experiencing countertransference is normal and expected in this field. Um, and it can interfere with the helping relationship if we don't have very clear boundaries 
Um, and especially if we don't have self-awareness about what's going on, you know, you might have all these feelings come up, but not understand why the feeling is so strong based on the exact situation. Others might see this reaction you're having as um, bigger than it might be uh, just based on the reality of the situation. So um, it can really interfere if you're not able to gain that self-awareness of why you're feeling the way you do. And it's not just because of how a client is acting or behaving, it's because of how that kind of triggers other things within yourself, within your personal history. Um, these can, they, the beautiful thing about this is that once you are bringing your awareness to your countertransference, to this situation and understanding it more based on your own personal history and experience, um, it's an opportunity to uh, work on those reactions by checking in with others about it. So if you're able to uh, share your experience of countertransference um, with a supervisor and work it out, you could then go back to the client and um, have a more, have a intentional and helpful guiding conversation to uh, share what that experience was like so that the client doesn't knows that it's not about them. Um, so countertransference work really requires self-reflection and or supervision. Um, self-reflection can happen with a supervisor. It can also happen in like peer uh, groups, but you know, like if you have a, a meeting with your peers, if you have a, a trusted colleague. Um, so there are multiple opportunities. And we'll talk about self-reflection a lot over the next uh, four sessions. Okay, so what might countertransference look like? Um, we have some positive and negative, a positive and a negative sign up here. This just kind of, you know, might feel a little bit negative towards the top of the list, might feel a bit more positive towards the bottom. And this just goes to show you countertransference isn't always bad feelings or great feelings. In the middle, you'll see a few that are a bit neutral, but they are all clues that countertransference could be happening. So some of the negative ones might be dread, aversion. I really don't want to go see this client. Um, you might be avoiding contact, delaying appointments, not trying super hard to reach people, feeling pessimistic, not feeling like this client has is going to get better, you know, feeling a little bit hopeless in that way. Might I mentioned judgment earlier. You might feel like blaming the client um, and have some anger. Um, this, the writing reflex, if you've been in, I think in MI, they use that term a lot, might come up where you just really want to give advice, give advice instead of slowing it down and trying to connect with the emotions of your client. You just want to fix it because it's uncomfortable. Um, body clues might be tense posture, increased pulse and blood pressure, clenched jaw, grimace. You know, I mentioned you might get overheated or you might, um, I forget the other example I just shared earlier, but you know what I'm, I'm saying here. Um, neutral clues would be thinking about client and downtime more than others, positively or negatively. It's just, you know, that client comes to mind more often than, um, than is helpful for you and continue to do this work or, you know, might have other impacts on you. Um, a client might remind you of someone in your life. This has come up for me a lot um, where, Something about the client in, 
trigger some conflict I've had somewhere in my life. And, and then I have to deal with that in supervision in order not to take that out on the client. Um, and then you might have images or associations arising unexpectedly. Um, something might remind you of a client uh, in a situation where you don't really want to be thinking about work. Um, so those are some of the neutral clues there in the middle. And then some positive clues. You might really connect with a client because of your personal history, um, your past experiences. Maybe you just really enjoy their personality. You might feel excited. You might be wishing you could spend more time with a client than other clients. Um, you might notice yourself feeling uh, like laughing more, smiling more or feeling really optimistic and hopeful. And, you know, we're not trying to put judgments on any of these experiences, these happen. Um, these are just a great way, or these are opportunities to say, okay, something's going on here. Why am I feeling this way about this situation with my client when it's not really necessarily related to what's actually happening in the moment? So those are some countertransference clues. Oh, we have a couple of comments. Um, sometimes it's hard to distinguish between countertransference and secondary trauma. Interesting. Yeah, I think that sometimes maybe, and feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, anybody, but I would think that the secondary trauma can be triggered by the countertransference potentially. Um, like if, if you are, you know, we've all witnessed a lot of our clients' trauma, either them telling us about it, uh, actually witnessing something in, as it's happening. Um, and this can impact how, uh, the, I, I'm sure that that experience could be connected to countertransference. I think what I think of is countertransference is really more related to your past personal experience where secondary trauma might be related uh, more to just the um, distress caused by witnessing the traumatic stories and um, trauma that your clients face. That's how I would distinguish it. If anyone has another idea, let me know. All right, so let's do a poll. Um, that's kind of about countertransference. I'll, oh, thanks for launching it, um, Elizabeth. So just wanting to know, it's not a trick question. It's a little, maybe a little bit, but have you ever worked with a client who reminds you of someone you know? This could be someone you know well, like a family member or another significant personal relationship. Awesome, we've got a bunch of people waiting in, thank you. So far, it's looking like majority are saying yes, about a quarter are saying no. So it looks like about three quarters of us have um, worked with a client who reminds you of someone you know well. Um, just wanted to point out how normal this is. So it's, you know, it's very normal for this to happen. Um, people remind us of other people all the time. So it's no surprise that our clients would, especially when they're sharing, uh, like Elizabeth was mentioning earlier, such intimate details about their lives, about their experiences with a lot of uh, behaviors that are stigmatized, you know, substance use, mental health, housing status. Um, so it makes sense that some of this stuff would come up. So thanks so much for that. And now I'll share this quick video um, 
from Brene Brown. Uh, and it is a really excellent demonstration of empathy uh, versus sympathy, um, which we think is related to boundaries. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about why that is. So what is empathy and why is it very different than sympathy? Empathy fuels connection. Sympathy drives disconnection. Empathy, it's very interesting. Teresa Wiseman is a nursing scholar who studied professions, very diverse professions where empathy is relevant and came up with four qualities of empathy. Perspective taking, the ability to take the perspective of another person or, or recognize their perspective as their truth. Staying out of judgment, not easy when you enjoy it as much as most of us do. <laughs> Recognizing emotion in other people and then communicating that. Empathy is feeling with people. And to me, I always think of empathy as this kind of sacred space when someone's kind of in a deep hole and they shout out from the bottom and they say, I'm stuck, it's dark, I'm overwhelmed. And then we look and we say, hey, and climb down. I know what it's like down here, and you're not alone. Sympathy is, ooh, <laughs> it's bad, uh-huh. <laughs> uh, no, you want a sandwich? <laughs> um, empathy is a choice, and it's a vulnerable choice, because in order to connect with you, I have to connect with something in myself that knows that feeling. Rarely, if ever, does an empathic response begin with at least. I had a, yeah. And we do it all the time. Because you know what? Someone just shared something with us that's incredibly painful, and we're trying to silver lining it. I don't think that's a verb, but I'm using it as one. We're trying to put the silver lining around it. So I had a miscarriage. Oh, at least you know you can get pregnant. I think my marriage is falling apart. At least you have a marriage. <laughs> John's getting kicked out of school. At least Sarah is an A student. But one of the things we do sometimes in the face of very difficult conversations is we try to make things better. If I share something with you that's very difficult, I'd rather you say, I don't even know what to say right now. I'm just so glad you told me. Because the truth is, rarely can a response make something better. What makes something better is connection. It always, every time I watch it, no matter what, it always just uh, hits me again how these two things are, how empathy and sympathy um, are really different experiences for both the person, uh, you know, trying to help and the person receiving it. And I just, I love it. You're invited to use it with anybody you want. Yeah, I love, I love that video. Um, and it's a really nice reminder, uh, just as a person in the world, <laughs> of what the difference in those two feels like. I love how this training content is, um, you know, it's focused around our work lives, but there are a lot of little nuggets uh, to apply to our personal lives as well. Um, and this is one of them. Um, right. So problems with sympathy uh, when it's coming up for us, I mean, it can be an indicator maybe that we're not able to access uh, sort of our present emotional state because of perhaps some challenging countertransference. Um, uh, 
And sort of, I guess, one of the, the downsides of having sympathy come up and have it come up unchecked or have that be sort of what the, your natural response is, is that it can perpetuate that power hierarchy. We see the antelope, the sandwich eating creature staring down from above. Um, and there's a clear sort of uh, lack of balancing the power visually, even in that situation. Um, and that's also sort of the tone that sympathy sets. Um, so empathy is our goal. We have to process any countertransference, any of that stuff that was on the sort of negative side of, um, of the cues to access our empathic capacity. Um, and uh, if we're sort of in that positive realm of we're feeling almost like overly empathic with a client, um, that's something else to check to see if if that sense of feeling like, you know, you're you're absorbing how they're feeling so much that you're you're overly excited, you're, you know, you're <laughs> crying about them daily or something like that. If we're over empathizing, that can be a sign of countertransference as well. And also something we need to sort of check and make sure we're keeping in balance. And I appreciate that comment around secondary trauma. I sort of took that in as a, um, I took a bit of a, a different sort of impression from it of maybe uh, you were meaning um, person who said that, who was that, uh, that it's, when you're just doing the work, it's sometimes hard to feel, tell which is going on. Sometimes countertransference and secondary trauma could feel the same uh, as a provider that maybe you're a bit cut off from your empathic capacity due to, and this could be maybe more of like compassion fatigue, um, but due to the impacts of secondary trauma, the symptoms of it, um, as can countertransference sort of keep you a bit unclear um, uh, and distant from um, the type of empathy, the level of empathy, like the dose of it that we want to have. Um, how can I fix feeling overly empath empathetic, empathic? Yeah, good question. How can you fix it? I mean, I think this is a really great question um, and I can answer it quickly with some suggestions, but I think the, the greater answer is in how can you explore that more deeply within yourself and in, you'll say it again, self-reflection, either with your teammates, your supervisor, writing, reading, et cetera, um, everyone's going to sort of find that balance of um, uh, having those internal boundaries around their emotional responses and have their own process of filtering through what's countertransference, what's what's bias, what's what. Um, if I have countertransference based off of a traumatic experience in my life, I might be I might be feeling a lot of feelings and it might not be something that gets dealt with very quickly. It might not be a quick fix. Or I might just feel overly connected to someone because we have shared values and I'm overly empathetic with them. And that might be a faster fix because once I'm aware of it, I can remember we're two different people and I've got a sort of a job role to do here. So I need to sort of set those, those mental limits there. So there's no straightforward answer um, except to explore explore, explore, explore. And we haven't mentioned it yet, but a lot of providers benefit from going to therapy um, themselves. If you don't receive any sort of supportive services yourself, it can be a great place to, once you find these cues coming up for you around countertransference, um, and you maybe get some flags going off, or you're experiencing some of that secondary trauma or vicarious trauma or compassion fatigue, um, to sort of unpack it and um, under, uh, yeah learn, learn to process it in a way that works for you. Okay. All right. So I'm going to move through this a little bit quickly because we want to get to our vignette, which is uh, a fun one. 
So boundary setting, um, we're going to talk about boundary setting and sort of or boundary skills, I guess, in a increasingly elaborate way, you know, over the, the next sessions. Um, but most basic skill is boundary setting. Um, we want to determine the expectations around service provision, figure out what, you know, what's our remit, what are we supposed to do, uh, agency policy, what fits the relationship, what fits the clinical context, um, and then communicate it clearly. Boundaries don't exist unless they're communicated. If we just think them, they don't exist. We have to share them. We have to verbally share them, ideally. Uh, in some cases, we might be sharing them in writing. Um, we need to like inhabit them physically um, and sort of uh, stick to what we say we're going to do around um, services and meeting expectations and you know physical boundaries, quite honestly. Um, but we need to communicate them and we need to sometimes be uh, reinforcing them, um, repeating them. Uh, we definitely need to do this when boundaries are crossed, or if we start to see signs that we might be working with someone who will want to cross that boundary or push a boundary. Um, so we'll talk more about communication skills on this in the future. Uh, we also wanna elicit clients' boundaries and stick to them. That's those client needs and preferences. And maybe there's some even more specific stuff that they're aware of um, that's around boundaries that they know works for them. So we can elicit that. And that's a great way to show a client that you're, you're really interested in building a relationship that is, is supportive to them, um, that you really care about their experience or the work you're, you do together. Boundary maintenance. <laughs> Absolutely a broken record here. Become self-aware. <laughs> you need to ensure a reflective process, including all those things I just mentioned a few minutes ago. Um, Mindfulness practice is something we haven't touched on yet. Um, I think someone said something about breath before, which kind of reminded me of that. Um, Self-awareness is so multifaceted. There's a lot to be aware of, thoughts, feelings, um, somatic stuff. Um, you know, how you uh, do that and how much like access you have to that, that's certainly something that people tend to uh, achieve greater access through practice and skill. And mindfulness practice is a great way to do that that doesn't involve anyone else um, or might not involve anyone else. So what that can look like for you, whether it's meditation um, or some guided mindfulness practice of different forms, some mindfulness infused therapy, um, some great stuff there. Uh, and uh, maybe it's a physical thing, like a, a type of exercise or yoga, running, anything like that, that gives you that space um, to be self-aware of your, um, in many cases, in your body. Um, so if you are someone who experiences a lot of cues physically, that can be really helpful. Okay, we need to identify where boundaries are showing up in our client relationships, uh, identify those key relationships for counter-transference, learn to recognize what it feels like and learn to recognize boundary crossings. All right, boundary crossings. And we might revisit this at the start of uh, day two. Um, so I'll just kind of briefly touch on this. Um, I guess we wanna differentiate between boundary, boundary crossings and boundary violations. First off, um, we'll be talking mostly about uh, the gray areas, the crossings, the violations, it's a bit more you know cut and dried. Um, boundary violations, are harmful or exploitative, um, and there are clear rules about them or laws. Uh, and these can include instances of abuse, physical or verbal aggression, borrowing or lending money, having like a financial transactional relationship, sexual advances or sexual contact. So the stuff that's pretty like clear cut. 
Boundary crossings, a little more of a gray area. Um, both clients and providers can do this, uh, can make the crossing. It can be intentional or unintentional. Um, it's a normal occurrence and product of a helping relationship. And just like countertransference, it's an opportunity for insight. It's a clue that maybe something needs to be tweaked um, in the working relationship uh, or with yourself. Um, it indicates a need for redetermining boundaries or so re-clarification. Uh, communicating them clearly and more support and consultation. Um, if you're not sort of finding the truth of what's going on and one route of, of self-reflection, try another. And we've got our little person here balancing uh, countertransference and vicarious trauma and burnout. And these are all things that impact our ability to maintain appropriate boundaries. Um, and so we will talk more about those, those vicarious trauma and burnout ones. Um, and so I'm so glad secondary traumatic stress came up today, um, cause it is a piece of the puzzle on what keeps us kind of, what keeps a weird filter on our eyes, what keeps our blinders on and how we can miss things, how oversight can occur. All right, let's go to our vignette and I'm going to check for comments. For me, counter-transference and secondary trauma merge sometimes because I can personally relate to so much of what my clients are experiencing that it's hard to turn off the feelings and the borders can become too porous. Wow, really well put. And I definitely remember that experience myself personally. And I'm sure so many people in the room do too, where it is really murky um, and it's just a lot of a lot of feelings. You're dealing with a lot of feelings and you're having a lot of feelings. And there are limits uh, to how we can process that and still keep it clearly identified and managed, right? Yeah, I think you know how you how you start a conversation, how you sort of show that you're human, that you're vulnerable. Um, I think there's a lot of humility and just showing genuine interest and curiosity. Um, um, when you show real interest and want to know someone's story, not just their symptoms, not just their deficits, not just uh, their resources, but what, how was their day? How's, you know, where, where are they from? What was, what was their, you know, just not just the stuff on the paper on the assessment, but really understanding their history. And you have to embody that interest. Truly. You need to feel that curiosity authentically. It comes through. And then how do you start to show empathy? You offer reflections. Um, you, you ask questions that let them know you're interested and you want to hear more and that you understand. And reflections are a great way to show a person that you're, you're following, that you get like, wow, that was this for you. Um, this must've felt like that for you. All right. Let's switch to our vignette. Chelsea and Liz, are you willing to read this slide real quick while I pop that yeah. in the chat? Is that okay? Thanks. Certainly. Yes. All right. So our vignette for today is about Jordan and Chase. I just need to Scroll to my notes section. Here it is. Okay. So Jordan is a gay cisgender. Sorry, we did use the shortened version. This um, is short for cisgender, which is the opposite of transgender. All right. Um, is a gay cisgender man, 31 year old outreach worker in Spa 4. Um, Jordan has li lived in his car for over two years after leaving a domestically violent relationship. He was able to get stable and housed by working in restaurants and doing some gig work. Uh, he eventually took some intentional peer support coursework online and became an outreach worker. Chase is Jordan's client. Um, he's a 27 year old gay cis man. He is street homeless. Uh, Chase is a sex worker and frequents gay clubs with his clients. Uh, he wants to continue this work despite experiencing a couple of assaults. 
when Chase was housed in the past, his sex work rubbed his roommates the wrong way, um, as well as property management return, resulting in him losing his housing and returning to the streets. Chase's primary goal for uh, this helping relationship is to get housed in his own place. He really wants that to happen. Um, in their exchange, Jordan uses self-disclosure about his own history with Chase to inspire hope and goal-orientedness. Um, and then Jordan and Chase, they've run into each other at gay clubs. Jordan was always sure to keep his distance or head to another bar, but he often wondered if that was really necessary. Thank you, Chelsea. Okay, so we're going to do this uh, discussion by going through some questions, and we're also then going to touch on some hypotheticals, like what do you, what changes if you know that and add this other layer of detail in. Um, so if you have that PDF open, you can see this is all, you know, those are the, the sections um, uh, laid out there, but I will switch to the next slide, which are our initial discussion questions, and I'll just probably pop back and forth so people can see the detail. Um, so where are there opportunities for Jordan to experience counter-transference? Where would Jordan maybe be experiencing or able to experience counter-transference with Chase? Okay, um, homelessness, uh, both being unhoused. Yep, um, when he shared his history of homelessness, yeah. Okay, assault. Yep, both visit the same club. Yep, same sort of social circles. Um, yep, similar age and similar uh, gender identity, and they're both gay at the club. Yep, past experience of homelessness, age, sexuality in the club. Okay. All right, we've all got this. And what power dynamics are at play in the relationship? Client and provider, yeah. Jordan is the mental health provider, yeah. So there's a power dynamic of Jordan's providing services. Environmental, I wonder, I wonder what you mean there, environmental impact around power dynamics. Maybe the fact that they run into each other at the same place. Yeah, okay, right. So Chase actually might have some knowledge about Jordan, might sort of equalize the power dynamic um, and could be uh, a challenge, um, possibly not. So, so economic power imbalance, yes. Maybe, um, we don't know who has uh, maybe a higher income, but it's possible just based off of Jordan's sort of stability in housing, um, that he has a sort of more stable socioeconomic status. Jordan is further along in his recovery, great point. Um, disclosure from provider. Yeah, Jordan chooses to share a little bit of his past with Chase. Okay, these are great. <clears throat> is there a circumstance in which Chase and Jordan can be friends? Okay, we got a bunch of no's. I bet there will be a parade of no's. <laughs> um, okay, we got a non-no. Not while he is in treatment. It would be good if Jordan discusses seeing one another in the community and that Jordan cannot contact him. But if Chase says hello, he can also decide how to identify Jordan if others are around. A neighbor or someone he has met before. Um, and not mental health related. Yeah, absolutely. So what do you do? do you, what do you, if you know you're going to see a client in the community off, you know, outside of work, you're not accompanying them to something. Uh, it's great to have that conversation in advance of how do you, how would you like me to address you? And we are not supposed to uh, at any point disclose uh, that someone is a client of ours or give any clue to that in a uh, sort of public situation. 
Okay, Annie, you're also saying in three years, they could be friends. Um, at least one open to breaking confidentiality. Yeah. Yeah. Could they ever be friends in a, a distant amount of time? It's a huge ethical question. Um, that based off of someone's code of ethics and what governs them, and I actually don't know the peer code of ethics that are what they typically are state by state. Not quite sure what it would say. Um, it, and it would be certainly a, a judgment call on um, doing no harm and ensuring the continued well-being, um, and ensuring that any sort of if there is a future friendship years down the road that that could not have any negative ramifications. I would be on the sort of no front myself, but I'm from my training background. Okay. Um, what do you think about Jordan's boundaries with Chase? This is sort of a, a bad question. Let's just skip. What can a trauma-informed lens inform best boundaries? How can, sorry, a trauma-informed lens inform best boundaries in this relationship? So where, where can a trauma-informed lens help inform boundaries between Jordan and Chase? And this is a good question because it's not terribly straightforward. Um, so take a second. Resolved experiences discussed. Okay, expressing empathy to the challenges of his lifestyle. Uh, validate choice to do sex work. Yeah, what choice is a piece of trauma-informed care? For sure, uh, sex work is a very um, judged and stigmatized profession um, that has some inherent risk. And uh, so often, you know, providers, well-meaning providers, don't approach it in a non-judgmental way. Um, it can be sort of judged, uh, sort of approached in a uh, paternalistic or um, controlling way. And that's not what a trauma-informed lens would want us to do. Okay, um, having a follow-up conversation about the club and include transparency of boundaries. Yeah, uh, let's see, examine how boundaries show up in the life of Chase. Yeah, what does Chase know about boundaries? Um, what have those looked like for Chase thus far? How has trauma he's experienced impacted how he understands boundaries? Same for Jordan. And do, I mean, a trauma-informed lens also very specifically, what trauma responses are either of them having um, at times? Um, Jordan needing to know that to manage his ability to do the work and chase to in terms of treatment. Okay, and how would Jordan use self-disclosure in an appropriate manner with Chase? How could? Again, how could Jordan use self-disclosure in an appropriate manner with Chase? We know that Jordan has used self-disclosure about his own history with Chase to inspire hope and goal-orientedness. And we don't know exactly what he shared at this point. Um, we just know it was for this purpose. Um, is there anything else that, uh, any other angles where Jordan could maybe self-disclose? Okay, he could communicate his experiences as facts, but careful with the emotional experience. Okay, so filtering out um, uh, the emotional impact, perhaps, of some experiences he's had, but saying, this happened to me. I've experienced something similar. There's, uh, that offers uh, relatability and uh, maybe a sense of not being alone. Okay, let's move to what changes if you know that. Um, oh, um, let's see, release information of his past to show empathy because he has been in the same position and attempt to keep conversation looking towards the future. Yeah, sure. All right, so what changes if you know that Chase sometimes sends Jordan thank you cards with Starbucks gift cards inside, which makes Jordan feel cared for? What, what and I know you can read the rest of the details on this uh, slide, but just starting here, 
what stands out to you? Jordan is receiving Starbucks gift cards within thank you cards, and it is making him feel cared for. What uh, comments, reflections do you immediately have? Never accept gifts from members. Careful of accepting gifts. Okay, boundary violations. Yeah, so let's just touch briefly on the gift thing. Different agencies will have different policies on gift receipt, receiving of gifts. Um, I worked at an agency where clients could give gifts to workers if they were under a $10 amount. It had to be documented in a progress note and it had to be reviewed and signed off on by a supervisor. Um, and if someone tried to give a gift larger than that, there had to literally be a receipt with the gift. <laughs> um, it would be carefully and supportively rejected with a supervisor involved. Um, and that was the agency's policy to try and give a sort of sense of autonomy and being able to give something um, or that the ability to give to clients um, and to break down some of those power dynamics, but to do it in a restricted way that kept them safe. But other agencies are going to say, absolutely not. And other individuals would say, absolutely not. I'm not comfortable with this. Okay. Process the meaning of the gift. Paul. Yeah. Jordan feels cared for. So he's having an emotional response to this behavior. Um, could this be a counter-transference clue or could this just be an emotional reaction to receiving a gift and feeling appreciated? Something for Jordan to explore. Yeah. You could explain to Chase program policies concerning gifts. Yep. Yeah. All right. So Jordan has shown his supervisor who is not a peer, the thank you cards, however, has not shared that he has received the gift cards. So what are, what are we seeing here that he's uh, restricting some information from his supervisor. He's not being 100% truthful, yeah. Always communicate with your supervisor to establish if accepting the gift was acceptable. If he keeps that information, then he, he is hiding it because he knows it was wrong. Yes. <laughs> Withholding information because he knows there is a gray area, yeah. He's, he knows it might not go over well. So there might be a trust issue with a supervisor. Um, you might not feel totally safe and comfortable, uh, and that's that's something to try and work out because um, it's really important to be able to share everything um, if you're trying to process client relationships and countertransference and instances like this around boundaries. He's condoning the behavior, concern if the client uses the gift cards as leverage in the future. I gave you this gift. Um, I'm going to tell everyone that I see you at the club doing this behavior that and they might judge whether it's truthful or not. There are many sort of like, this can be leverage, right? A, re a, a really grim view of, um, you know, uh, people. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it is something to look out for, um, right? He's having trouble with his own boundaries. Yeah. All right. So once Chase is ready to graduate from services, he expresses to Jordan that he couldn't imagine his life without Jordan's support and hopes they can be friends. Um, and so then Jordan feels he and Chase would be friends if not for work. His other friends don't understand what he's been through. Um, and I'm just going to move to the end here. Feeling conflicted about how to proceed, Jordan picks what he feels like is middle of the road and offers to be Chase's friend on Facebook. What do you all think about that? What do we think about social media contact? Nope, not a good idea. Even though they're not working together anymore. Dual relationships are never okay, are not okay, never okay. No social media, hard no, no, never good. Okay, and I'm that crosses all boundaries. I'm waiting for someone to play devil's advocate here because there often is someone. 
too much personal info and other contacts. Yeah. Yeah. Be professional. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. It's like, even if they were going to be friends uh, years down the road, would you, you know, is the social media thing? Okay. It's, it's a really interesting modern, you know, trouble challenge. Um, maybe Jordan can leave the agency if he wants to carry on. I mean, everyone's going to feel different. I would still say, you know, that there's still that ethical issue of the power imbalance and having all that specialized knowledge. All right. Um, so what do we see in here? Chase has got some messy boundaries now too. Couldn't imagine his life without Jordan's support. That's a really strong statement. Um, he's asking for the friendship, which is not uncommon. I'm sure many of you have received that request before and how to navigate it. Um, but Jordan's also realizing like, I really value this person in my life. Other people don't understand me. He wants to be his friend. So this is something to really process. Um, you've engaged clients that were already on your already on your Facebook. Yeah, it happens. Sometimes a dual relationship isn't, you know, <laughs> intentional. It happens because you already know the person and then you have to sort of backtrack and manage that. Yeah, absolutely. I have up here on the screen and I know folks, this is such an interesting topic and we can keep talking about it in future sessions. Um, and we will keep talking about it because we're going to go through all these different instances of boundary navigation. Um, I can't remember next week. Chelsea could probably chime in. It might be financial if I'm not mistaken. So sort of a similar vein. Um, I asked for person's items like drawing me pictures. That's so great. Love that. Um, so there's, there's something uh, where it's a little bit more simple and it's also maybe a great activity for a person to do, uh, which would be therapeutic as well. So this is in this slide deck and we're like one minute till, um, and we don't have an evaluation. So I'll spend this one minute on this slide. Uh, but there's some recommendations that you can read through for social media. And yeah, a great rule of thumb is to not become friends with someone or contact with someone on social media, but here are also some tips on uh, privacy and security. So um, how you can increase your anonymity, decrease your social network, hide profiles from search engines, turn off GPS functions, limit posts, review your profile often for content that you might've been tagged in by other people and seeing if that's public, searching your online persona, password protection, um, and having transparent discussions with clients about this stuff. All of these things are things, you could talk about a gift policy and you could talk about social media within the beginning of a relationship with someone and just being like, hey, just letting you know, this is sort of how we manage things in, in my work world, in this agency. So if it ever comes up, this is sort of how I'll respond. Um, <laughs> so that's there if you're needing some guidance um, on how to make sure you're not very findable um, and your personal life isn't very findable by clients. Cause some clients do take a lot of interest. And I've, I've certainly been reached out to on social media eons ago before privacy and security was ever as clear cut as it is now. Maybe it's not even as clear cut. Maybe, perhaps it was better then. I'm not sure, but I had to deal with that situation. So, all right. Um, here's your assignment for next session. Uh, we'll meet next on September 29th. Um, and these are suggestions. You don't have to do it. We're not going to check your homework or grade you, but you can think on listing the reflective practices that you utilize or ones you could begin to. What's maybe something you could start doing if you don't have a, a strong set of reflective practices. And we'd also ask that you try and notice some reactions, thoughts, feelings, physiological sensations when working with clients. Notice when you can use empathy easily. Notice when you have clues of an unconscious reaction, that countertransference thing we were talking about. 
and consider opportunities, either on past situations or present ones, for expectation setting and boundary clarification with clients. Um, so where might, where might there be room for improvement or clarity um, around boundaries with clients in the past or with folks that you're working with now? All right. There are references. There will be references at the back of each um, slide deck. Yeah. All right. Okay. Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone. See you next time.